0: Hi everyone, happy December, and welcome back to the Park Street Insider Podcast. I'm your host, Andres Correa, and today we're diving into the world of beverage alcohol acquisitions. This episode was recorded at Bar Convent Brooklyn this year, where Jeff Menashi, the CEO of Demeter Advisory Group, discussed the mindset of prospective buyers when sizing up beverage alcohol acquisitions. Menashi explains why models that beverage alcohol brands traditionally use to position themselves as attractive investments may no longer apply in the current market. Instead, he makes the case for his own 2.0 model and gives a sense of how today's brands can get investors like him to the table. In this episode, you'll also hear how shifting distribution models are helping brands achieve a positive cash flow in less time than it might have taken historically. And you'll learn more about the value of building an engaging community with your target consumers. Just a quick note that Manashi will be talking through some revenue figures this episode, and when he does, he's speaking in millions. Without further ado, sit back, relax, but maybe take some notes for this essential talk from Jeff Menashe.
1: I've been in the industry now for 30 years, but I actually grew up in it. My father was an owner-operator, and that sort of informed my Interest and perspective in the space, but also working with founder letter organizations. In 2003, and relevant to this conversation, I started Demeter Advisory Group, which is an investment bank focused on the space. And for the first seven years of the firm's life, the work was really focused on retained buy side advisory to the large strategics and really running their corporate venturing groups. That shifted after the financial crisis and sort of in 2010 solidly to where we were advising many of the targets that we had unearthed for those buy-side clients in the years prior. Kind of fast forward, we're now building our own brands through a related entity called Demeter & Co., which Demeter Advisory is an advisor to. So we love the space. What I thought would be a way to just sort of frame up a conversation at a very kind of high level, how I think about it, would be sort of work from back to front. So what is an acquirer thinking about? And I have not yet encountered a, an executive team that is trying to think of adding to the tail of their portfolio, right? So they're always wanting to put things to the front. So they're really, at the end of the day, it's about raising the center of gravity on their portfolio in terms of growth and profit. So it has to be accretive to what they currently own. Then, you know, you can kind of start to think like, maybe focus on a one or two words. I'm kind of stuck on singularity and sustainability. So realize you're coming into a portfolio, you're coming into a family, and you've got to work within that environment. I like singularity, and I'm really there focused first on product and category. So when I kind of hear brands that are automatically trying to launch in two, three categories, or they're starting with a very wide assortment of products, I get concerned. Singularity really does matter. And then when you think about sequencing a commercial strategy, although there's phases to it, there should be singularity in terms of the linkage from step one to step two to step three, and really following that journey to break even. The second one, sustainability, is just that because a lot of this growth and profit is probably going to be differentiated or white space, it's not going to be, most times, a chance where somebody can, a buyer can leverage what they currently have and uh, you know provide that volume to the brand as it's being built. So you've got to deliver something that in terms of margin, in terms of trajectory, can kind of carry on with that growth trajectory that somebody is paying for. And so then, you know, kind of like if you dig a little bit deeper, if those are like headline stories about how to think about it, then maybe it's sort of like, well, let's get to know it. Like, where would you see these things? And I said, you know, generally when we've looked in the market, and this is, you know, the entirety of my career, you've kind of looked in the on-premise world, really. And and what you've seen generally is that that strategy that brands have followed has been one where it's build distribution footprint and then brand awareness will follow. And... I'm really kind of focused on the brand awareness piece of this because this will counter to what the next slide will be, which is about brand relevancy. But you know, this model really sort of says that the supplier, the brand, is trying to intersect with consumers through a liquid to lips, but that they're really not targeting their target consumer. What they're targeting is the consumer that's in the city in the accounts that they've decided to to target. And that's where the focus is. And they're really by doing that, they're leaving the brand engagement with the end consumer, to a third party. And that's you know, generally worked, and we'll kind of talk about what that's meant in a few slides relative to this model, which is really a different way to think of things. And I think this is where the market's going, which is where you're building distribution and brand relevancy hand-in-hand from day one. And the way that you do that is by knowing, as the brand owner, who your target consumer is and when I say know who they are, I'm talking about more than ethnicity, gender, age, the various demographics, even psychographics. But I, I want to know where am I sourcing them from? What are they drinking? How often are they drinking? Whom are they drinking with? What are they willing to pay? What resonates with them in terms of visual cues, brand story, flavor profile? Who do they trust and what do they need to see from those people in order to feel that they're like really leaning in? This is hard to do. This is really traditional CPG thinking, as I've seen it, because I've been able to work outside beverage alcohol at very, you know, earlier points of my career. It's hard to even, for an up-and-coming brand, I think it's one of the biggest impediments, is to find someone at a reasonably you know, cost-effective rate who can do this sort of research for you. But this is the work that a buyer, particularly if you had an asset being diligence by private equity, I mean, the first studies they're queuing up would be sort of getting at these questions. And from that, you know, what you're able to do is develop tactics and strategies and really sort of measure, quantify how this is going to scale. But what you're ultimately doing is building a community. And I think, you know, if anything, and this is a word that I would not have used, say, two years ago, but if you were asking me, what is somebody looking for in a brand? The way you get to those characteristics would be by having built community. And, you know, this is, to me, first and foremost, what any brand owner would do. What's interesting, and this is sort of new within the industry, and again, a 30-year perspective, is that a significant role in how to do this is not just by moving from on-premise to off-premise and also e-commerce playing a a factor there as well, but it's the type of off-premise accounts that you work with. And really what I'm signaling is that there's a linkage, there's a partnership with national accounts early on, and they have to be sort of premium education-based selling environments that is kind of essential to this model. And and being that I've been at this for a long time and been in some other industries, I kind of call this the Sephora effect. If you look at really what was like the tipping point and prestige beauty, mastige beauty, um, if we even think even further back in natural organic foods, it wasn't until there was like a national retailer that an independent brand could see a path to profitability in two to three years nationally that you really saw investment capital come in and a different type of founder and the ability to scale brands in a different way than prior versions that had been able to. And so, you know, we're now seeing that with Total Wine. Back when I was early in my career, you know, there was Cost Plus, but they weren't the premium, super premium level. You know, Costco, one could say, has done this in a version, but with the discounting model, it's sort of not been in the lack of the education base. It's not been able to carry it through. But now I think Total is really sort of changing the game. And there's others too, but you know, this is uh, something that to me is integral where those partnerships are. And so this is what I alluded to up front. What I see and kind of, again, just a different way to describe what may be of interest is I'm calling that the on-premise focused model 1.0. And this idea of really identifying your consumer and finding a way to build a community around them by knowing how to engage with them is model 2.0. And obviously what I'm hinting at is I think that the interest is now in model 2.0. And the way I compare and contrast those is that the years to positive cash flow would have been kind of four to seven, just out of sheer necessity, based on what you could raise. But now I think that there's a deliberateness that needs to be where your you're, you're positive cash flow in less than three years, and ideally sort of around two, two and a half. In terms of the amount of capital that's needed, you know, it was really eight to 10. And this isn't for building some Taj Mahal and kind of having a big facility build out it's just you know purely brand building and then there being the inventory build as well. But I sort of always thought of 8 to 10 as sort of like a good amount for you to show traction. But I think that now in this new environment and with there being additional costs and just with what's happening with cost of goods, particularly we're talking spirits here, I think that number now is $15 million on average. The distributor model is changing. Uh, it was very fragmented, kind of non-majors. I think to do this now and with the national change being pulled forward early on, it's almost imperative for you to be aligned with one of the majors. Gross margin, you know, as mentioned a second ago, would have been good in model 1.0 to sort of be in the 48 to 52 was, was like a good independent up-and-coming brand. I think that now you have to be over 60 because the the investment, the reinvestment in A&P that's needed in order to build something that's delivering some innovation and maybe even be developing a new category alongside a brand. The positioning, I think it's moved from premium to super premium, luxury if not uber luxury, and you're sort of seeing that with this new wave in tequila. Five-year volumes, you know, 30,000 nine-liter cases was a common aspiration, but I think, again, going back to identifying that target consumer, I think you have to think of a minimum of 50 million net revenue in four to five years, which would sort of correlate to these price points, just you know, sort of two 250,000 cases or greater. E-commerce wasn't really thought of. Now, I think that you, depending on the category, could think of it up to 30% of your volume in the first two to three years. And that digital spend you wouldn't have thought of. But now I think that a minimum of three quarters to $3 million, particularly if there are the creator involved where that's helping with that, can build that community or access the community, is not uh, is, is not far-fetched. So I hope that's helpful.
0: Hi, everyone. It's Emily again.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode. If you're enjoying the Park Street Insider podcast, don't forget to rate us and leave a good review. If you're interested in getting involved in Park Street University, email us at psu at parkstreet.com.
0: Thanks a lot.